Hello and welcome back to Intelligence Talks. I'm your host, Anna Ward. I'm a senior residential analyst at Knight Frank. And today I'm joined by Knight Frank's head of viticulture, Ed Mensal-Lewis. Ed's role sees him support vineyard managers and wine producers grow their business. And he identifies and acquires land suitable for vines, planning and development projects. We're also joined this week by our guest speaker, Richard Balfour-Lynn. Richard was formerly CEO of MWB Group Holdings, the owner of Malmaison and Hotel de Vin, and he's also co-founder of Balfour Winery on the Hush Heath estate in Kent. Hush Heath is one of England's biggest wine producers. It makes over 400,000 bottles of still and sparkling wines each year. Hi, Ed and Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Morning. Thanks for having us. So for this podcast, we'll be looking at the English wine boom and how it's impacting the land market. So interestingly enough, English sparkling wine in particular has, of course, been portrayed as one of the biggest uh, wine world success stories. So currently it only represents a fraction of global sales, but we're seeing sales growing and there are now over 700 vineyards in England and Wales. So Richard, obviously you're really close to this. Um, In terms of that wine boom that we're seeing for English wine, what are your next moves in the wine sector? Are you expanding at the moment? We're expanding production to meet increased demand, which is very exciting. And we're also expanding our hospitality arm. So we are adding more pubs with rooms, both in London and the southeast. We will have 11 of them in the next week or two. And um, we've also been selected by Maidstone Borough Council to build... I think, I mean, Kent's real first wine hotel, a boutique wine hotel that's connected to education, wine education, rooms, facilities, international facilities that uh, can meet the competition from abroad. And in terms of the growth projections for English wine, I mean, what, what do you look for in terms of how you think the sector is likely to expand over the next few years? Obviously, people have got really excited about sparkling wine in particular. Um, So what do you think the projections for growth look like? I think the real growth area we've seen is in still wines, Mm -hmm. which is relatively new as a phenomenon because we would have expected not to be competitive, competing with much cheaper Chilean wines and other wines from around the world. But what we're seeing is absolute quality of English wines, still wines coming through. We're seeing the sort of tank method, the sort of non-traditional champagne method growing dramatically. Uh, We're seeing more of that. Really, it's almost the Prosecco method, if I could call it that, which has a great advantage of bringing more and more younger drinkers into drinking English sparkling wine. We're seeing the growth of good quality wine in cans. And and we're looking at a slightly different market. We're looking at a younger wine drinking market than traditionally one would associate with wine drinkers. And I think, therefore, the way the wine is being presented is very, very important to look at a, a wider range of audience. And when you're talking about a younger market, you also mentioned, I and mean, I think for some reason, the sparkling wine market has sort of caught the imagination a bit. But you're saying that you think there's more growth in the English still wine to come. Is that right? I think there is. I think there's less people doing it. And I think that we're producing some really high quality still wines and people now are far more interested in tasting English wines as a, a wide variety where traditionally it was only sparkling. And Ed, in terms of news that's hit the market recently, obviously this isn't exactly new, but it's certainly coming up in the future. Rishi Sunak's overhaul of alcohol duty from February 2023 
is obviously good at benefiting English wine producers. So the tax is more on stronger ABV wines like Rioja. How do you see that sort of impacting the market at the moment in terms of appetite for developing vineyards and wine production? Well, I think it's very positive. It's bringing it in line with um, the alcohol duty for still wine, which is about £2.23 per bottle. So you save about 60 pence in comparison to what you would have paid for sparkling wine. And it's lovely to see the government backing this growing industry. And I think it's welcomed by all wine producers. The thing about making wine is that it will take five years from the date you plant your your vines until you can press the grapes and, and start making the wine. And it's a further two or three years if you're making sparkling wine. And so by the time you actually sell your first bottle, your work in progress is almost eight years in length. And so anything that will increase the financial performance when you actually come around to selling your wine is, is going to be welcomed, particularly with that length of work in progress. And in terms of the rising appetite we're seeing for English wine, what kind of an impact is that having on the land market at the moment? How competitive is site selection currently? It's really, really competitive. Over COVID, we saw huge increases in sales for lots and lots of wine producers. And the result is they're looking to ensure that they can meet demand going forwards. And that starts with having the right land. And so... Uh, I think everyone's experiencing the same problem, which is guaranteed supply of grapes, which again starts with guaranteed supply of good quality land. And so we need to make sure that we're finding the best land. But of course, that's not always easy because farmers aren't particularly good at selling it. And so my job is to try and sit around the kitchen table, drinking lots of tea, encouraging landowners, it's in their interests to um to sell to these brilliant wine producers. And for you, Richard, obviously you're at the coalface of all of this. I mean, in terms of development of vineyards, I mean, how are the cost pressures at the moment? Are you seeing rising land values an issue currently for wine production? I think that the most important thing is site selection. And I think a lot of people are busy planting in areas that they probably shouldn't plant. Mm. One of the very simple tricks is to find out whether the land previously grew fruit. If it grew fruit, there's a very good chance that it will grow grapes. And I think a lot of people are planting in, in difficult locations where I think their yields will be very low, if anything at all. I think that the way we've approached land, yes, Ed is absolutely right, it's difficult to buy land, it's difficult to buy the right land. But what we're doing is we're signing a number of 20-year grower agreements, which is the traditional champagne method where the the champagne house would be the blender and all around the champagne house you'd have families that would grow historically for that champagne house and that's what we're doing so farmers are not having to then sell the land what they're using it for is slightly different uses so it's not a monoculture situation so they'll have arable they'll have sheep they'll have cows they'll have a whole range of things but now as part of that is grapes and so we'll we'll sign long-term grower contracts where the farmer is guaranteed sale prices against quality obviously but it makes it a bankable proposition for the farmer to invest in planting vines. Ed, what's your outlook on that? Obviously, you know, what Richard seems to be saying is that clearly vines are now becoming part of the sort of norm that you might see for a sort of arable land use. And has that always been the case? Or would you say this phenomenon is a quite recent one? I think it's relatively new in terms of the crop being included in the rotation. And it's also, it's not for every farmer. And so, you know, I've, I've worked with Richard in brokering grape contracts in the past. And one of the things I'm always very careful about is making sure that whoever is going to grow those grapes has some experience in growing other fruit because it's different machinery. It's a different outlook on weather concerns. It's a different general skill set. And so it's not always right for an arable farmer to move into making grapes, but it generally is right for someone that's been making apples, pears, apricots, plums. 
And so you need to be careful who you get into bed with, frankly. But I think you're finding that you make more per acre from the sale of grapes. And so it's an interesting it's interesting from your turnover in terms of the acreage being a fixed asset if you're making grapes versus winter wheat, which is far less valuable in terms of the output you get per acre. And what else are new entrants tracking? I mean, is global warming, for example, is that quite a big factor in deciding to get into wine? Obviously, it looks like that sort of skewed in the favour of English wine producers if it enables them to kind of be able to produce, say, more red wines more easily and so on. Don't want to back global warming, obviously, as a a good thing here. It's it's careful. You need to be careful (laughs) with the narrative. But um, you are correct. And in particular, there are three grape varieties that make up traditional champagne as we know it, which is Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. And they will only produce wine-worthy fruit if the growing season temperature, which is the average temperature from the 1st of April to the 31st of October, if your growing season temperature is less than 13 degrees Celsius, you probably don't have the right climate to be making um, champagne as we know it, or the wines that, that you're familiar with champagne. But since about 2010, we've consistently hit a GST, a growing season temperature of above 13 degrees Celsius. And so... For that reason, we are able to make sparkling wine. And in terms of just looking closer at the impact on land, I mean, is, is there a real fight for the land at the moment in terms of people getting their hands on the right sites? Presumably Kent in particular is a, a real hotspot. Yeah, everyone has the same problem. They're all looking for more land. There's only a fixed supply of suitable land. And our unique selling proposition as a business in Night Frank is being very good at identifying land suitable for vines. We've built a, a mapping platform that allows us to look through all of the important layers like soil type, altitude, frost risk, temperature, wind speed, and we can drill down on a tile-by-tile basis to what really suitable land looks like. And um, the really, really suitable land is is going to be worth much more because of the economies of scarcity. And Richard, I mean, you've obviously been in the business for years. From what Ed's saying, obviously, this is a really competitive market. I mean, what would be your advice to people getting into this? Is it really going to be quite difficult for them, do you think, to get an edge in such a competitive and pretty well-supplied market? I think that um, my advice to anybody coming in is to understand who your market is and what you want to supply them. There's the rather romantic notion of grape growing and sort of straw hats sitting in the sun. The reality is a science you have to be able to really not compromise on anything. You need people who are really good viticulturalists and viticulturists in this country, not viticulturists coming into this country because there are different weather patterns, there are different rules and the different things you learn and therefore it's really important you have local knowledge. And I think that you have to really understand that this is a 10, 20-year investment. This is our 20th anniversary And every year we've invested further and further. And so it's a long-term commitment. It's a long-term commitment in achieving quality, in achieving a strong brand. Uh, Brand is incredibly important if you're going to successfully sell wine in competition with others as more and more people enter the market. And as more people enter the market, the risk is some of the quality suffers. We've seen this all over the world where New Zealand, Australia had huge wine lakes as a result of everybody jumping on the bandwagon, but not understanding the difficulties of what they're doing. So it's really important you, you have the A, the long-term financing, you have the long-term stomach for it. You do, you do, you know, we are on the edge of the growing area in the world. We do get difficult years. Last year, frankly, was our hardest year weather-wise that we've had in 20 years. We had a very poor August. 
We had a lot of frosts in April, a majoring bud burst. And so I think we all of us, all English wine growers, are terribly short on wine. And this year we're all having to allocate wines. So it is a long-term plan. And you do need to understand who your market is, how you're going to segregate your different distributions, retail, wholesale, and trade, and and even export. And you need a, you need a, you need you need a very very clear business plan. Just picking up on um, the point on sales, obviously the kibosh, the sort of romantic notion. I guess it's a bit like people dreaming to sort of set up a restaurant. Obviously, getting into a vineyard, people have certain ideas about what that looks like. But let's talk about sales because obviously you're one of the biggest producers in the UK. In terms of those over 400,000 bottles that you sell each year, I mean, what sort of channels do you aim for and what makeup would you recommend to sort of new entrants coming in? Look, clearly selling retail at retail prices is the best way forward. For every bottle I sell to a supermarket, I need to sell three to a supermarket to make the same margin as selling one from our cellar door. So retail sales are really most important. And therefore, the local market around your winery is very important. The tourism aspect of wine is terribly important. I mean, we've seen this all over the world with the Champagne region or Sonoma or Napa in California. You know, it's about creating a wine tourism sector and therefore selling from your cellar door, selling locally, selling local shops selling local pubs and restaurants. So that, to me, is is the most important element. But equally, supermarkets supply 80% of wines in this country. So you need to be able to work with them. Again, today's supermarkets, you don't walk out with a case of 12 bottles. It's all delivered to your door by the Acados or the Tesco Direct and all these people. So you need to work with them, much lower margin, but you need to understand how to work and then you need to be able to supply them because you can't let them down. Thank you for joining me, Ed and Richard. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having us on. For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note, which goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You can see our show notes for more details on that. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and listen out for our next episode in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks. <laughs>